0: and Christ Jesus our Savior. This is the book of Titus, the letter to Titus. So Let's back up. Let's take this section one phrase at a time, and I will say... When it comes to teaching through the word, the epistles are, are the sweet spot. This is where it's, it's real easy to do this because with the stories, sometimes you're trying to break down, okay, well, how are we gonna do this in, in chunks? But Paul makes it real easy with his letters because you just kind of follow the train of thought all the way through, which is what we're trying to do. I'd rather you understand this book by the time we're done than remember all the clever points that I had to make. So it says, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Titus is an epistle, which is a word for letter, written by Paul the Apostle. You know, we begin with the addressee when we write letters, you know, dear so-and-so. We would say, dear Titus, right? Sincerely, Paul at the bottom. But they did it the opposite way. Paul writing to Titus. And this is what it is. It's Paul the Apostle writing to his friend Titus as he ministered on the Mediterranean island of Crete. We will talk about that more next time, but that's the situation here. Titus is one of the pastoral epistles, the other two being 1st and 2nd Timothy. And the reason they're called pastoral epistles is because they're not written to a general church congregation. They are written to an individual, Timothy or Titus. The other one of those is Philemon. But what separates these from even that one is they are written to ministers of the gospel about being ministers of the gospel. There's, of course, plenty for us to gather, but they were both written to guys that were doing ministry that Paul had sent out. And it gives a lot of practical advice about how to do that, how to run a church. And that's why we call them the pastoral epistles. If you go to Bible college, you will study these, I promise you. There's an awful lot to glean from them if you're going to be in full-time ministry. The pastoral epistles are famously disputed. Most liberal theologians do not believe that Paul wrote these. And there are several reasons given for these. I'll just give you three so that you can be aware of them if you ever come across them. Many people like to say these things like they're facts. They'll say, well, everybody knows Paul didn't write, Titus. Paul didn't write, so everybody knows that. By everybody knows that, they mean they read that in their Intro to Religion class. But let me explain to you why people say that. Number one, they say Paul's vocabulary and style are different in the books of Timothy and Titus. They say he uses different words and he uses different phrases. But I actually read a really great breakdown. uh, I believe it was by George Knight, one of my commentators, that demonstrated in his book, it's actually not that different. If you take the three as a whole, it looks different. But if you break down each individual book, which is probably the best way to do it, he's like, it's really not that much of a difference. And not only that, it's a different kind of letter. So we should expect that Paul would write it a little bit differently because he's not really preaching. He's writing to a colleague now. The second is the emphases are different. They say, Paul doesn't talk about justification by faith anywhere. To which you say, well, I would assume Timothy and Titus kind of knew that part. They kind of understand as many of his other letters, he's trying to defend his gospel. He's not really doing that in Timothy and Titus, but uh, he doesn't emphasize maybe some of the things that he does in others. But that that is kind of an odd thing to say. It's like, well, this book isn't like your other book, so you couldn't possibly have written it. That That's kind of the leap that you're making, and it's it's kind of a big one when you see that. And the third thing is this is totally bias speaking this is not not good theology they say well look the theology of Timothy and Titus are so developed There's a place in Titus where he explicitly calls Jesus our God and Savior. And there's examples and evidence of creedal material, meaning that the the teachings of the church were starting to be formalized. Some of the things Paul says are not like off-the-cuff statements, but they're written almost in poetic form. And it seems like Paul is drawing on common traditions that the church has. And they say, well, it's too early for that to be developed for Paul to write it. To which I say, well, that's kind of putting the cart before the horse. If Paul wrote this, it shows you that it wasn't too early for this to be developed. And of course, if you believe, as we do, that this doctrine was handed down to the church from Christ and that they knew who Jesus was from the beginning, we don't believe that it took hundreds of years for these teachings to develop. So these objections are easily overcome. We're going to treat this like what it is. It's God's word written by the apostle Paul, as is the universal church tradition until higher criticism came around. So who is this guy Paul? You've probably heard his name. Formerly, his name was Saul of Tarsus. Saul of Tarsus. He was a Pharisee. He was a persecutor of the church, dragging people off to prison and and presumably unto death as well, until the radical conversion on the road to Damascus, where the light of heaven shone and Paul or Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he was struck blind until Ananias came and laid his hands on him. He believed on the Lord Jesus. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. He was baptized and he began to minister. He became the apostle to the Gentiles and was the church's or one of the church's most prominent missionaries traveling throughout the Gentile world, preaching the gospel, planting churches, which is why he's writing the letter that he is. It's a continuation of that ministry. And you see, he identifies himself here as two things, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, an apostle was, just means one who is sent out, but it also implies authority. It implies, as well, a certain level of the power of the Holy Spirit in a unique way. It's one of the spiritual gifts. But we would think of an apostle as somebody that would kind of be the head honcho. He was in charge and is going to assert himself. But Paul first calls himself a servant of of God. It's the Greek word doulos. It, it maybe more literally could be translated slave. Somebody whose life and rights are not his own. So Paul even saw his ministry as an apostle, as a subset of his calling as a servant of Jesus Christ, which is what Jesus said, isn't it? If you want to be great in God's kingdom, you must be the servant of all. And when they were fighting over who's supposed to be the best in God's kingdom, Jesus called over a little kid and said, you've got to be like this child right here. This is what the greatest in the kingdom looks like. So you see right even there, Paul is is seeing his position as a chance to serve as many people as possible. Now, when was this written? We can identify this pretty, pretty clearly because this is certainly after Paul's first imprisonment. The book of Acts ends with Paul in prison in Rome. Church history tells us that, and as well as clues in the New Testament, that Paul was released from prison the first time. And he actually went on a fourth missionary journey that went all the way to Spain, if you can believe that. He mentions that in some of his letters. But one of the other reasons we know that is Paul is going to give Timothy some, instru- or Titus, some instructions at the end of this book where he's going to tell him to, about places that we don't read about in the book of Acts. So this is probably written during Paul's fourth missionary journey. We know Paul was arrested and beheaded a second time in Rome. He wasn't beheaded a second time. He was arrested arrested a second time. And this time he was actually beheaded uh, around 68 AD. So this would have been between 65, 67, mid to late 60s AD. Which, keep in mind, that's like 35 years after Jesus rose from the dead. So it's still pretty close. Isn't that awesome? And the book of Titus, as I mentioned, is giving this pastor, it's really kind of bigger than a pastor, maybe more of a a bishop would be a a good word to describe, but he gives the pastor advice about establishing the church with a practical emphasis on good works. So if people that think Paul is not into works, no, Paul knows we're not saved by works, but he understood the need for good works, which is what this book is going to be all about. And I think those practical matters are going to be very instructive for us as a congregation. So Paul, a servant of God and apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life. This is one of those great little cascading statements that Paul will often give, where he, he gives what his ministry was all about. So I'm an apostle and I'm a servant, and he kind of says, This is what it's for. This is what I do in this four part description. And really, this is a description of Christianity as a whole, too. So let's look at these four things. Number one is the faith of God's elect. It all begins with faith. When Paul refers to this here, he's talking about the initial and ongoing belief. In the gospel what is the gospel story I mean you know it right that Jesus of Nazareth was the Son of God who died on the cross and rose again from the dead for the forgiveness of sins to be received by grace through faith that's the gospel and that's what we are to believe and so Paul says my ministry is to provoke this initial faith in people That's evangelism. And then to strengthen that faith through my ministry. So that hopefully by the fifth year that you've been around me, Paul says, you are that much more strong in your faith. You should notice also that we are called God's elects. There is that mysterious process of election where God chooses those who are to be saved. And you can push that doctrine way too far or you can completely ignore it. And neither one of them is good. We can just bask in it and revel it. The fact that God handpicked you to be saved. Romans 9 talks about that. Ephesians 1. So this is the first part. Is to believe and to strengthen the commitment of Christians to Christ and his gospel. That's what I hope to do here too. Second of all is the knowledge of the truth. This means our growth in understanding the truth about God. So we believe in Jesus Christ, but there's a lot to learn after that. We all have ideas and opinions that have to be corrected once we receive our salvation. We were just talking about the churches in Nepal, who unfortunately very often will plant multiple churches, one for each of the castes in their city, and they'll have signs on the door that says, you can't come in here if you're not part of such and such caste, which is of course totally wrong, but it's natural to them to believe that, but they need to be brought under the subjection of the gospel. It's the same thing for us. Just because our culture moves on doesn't mean a lick. What does the word say? We need to come to the knowledge of the truth. Well, I don't think that's wrong. doesn't matter what you think. What does the word say? What did Jesus say? And the way this is done is through teaching, through the study of the word, through this personal admonition. This is a big part of a pastor's job, is to instruct individuals on matters where they're coming short or having trouble, and also to encourage one another. That dogged insistence that what God said is right. And many of you have expressed to me that that's one of the things you love and appreciate about this church the most, is our dogged insistence that the way God said it is the way it is. So number three, It accords with godliness. Accords with godliness. This means that salvation and the truth about God are to be manifested in a changed lifestyle. We can forget that. Especially people that really like to study doctrine. They're really into that knowledge of the truth part. But they miss the fact that it's supposed to change your life. And if it hasn't changed your life, then what good is that? Many people look down on some who are being more obedient to Christ but kind of have some doctrine a little askew when they themselves feel so proud because I know everything there is to know, but they don't leave their house. They don't do anything for Jesus. Jesus taught us so much about being poor in spirit and being pure in heart and turning the other cheek and loving your neighbor and forgiving one another. The gospel is supposed to teach us those things. We can uh, sometimes focus a little too much, dare I say it, on the cosmic import, the eternal import of salvation to the neglect of the fact that one of the things God was doing, and in fact a primary thing, was to fill the world with people who knew how to live right and to completely transform the world around them thereby. And fourth is this hope of eternal life. This is that, that higher truth, that motivation of the Christian life that one day We're going to heaven, and we're going to be there forever and ever. When you know that death is not the end, when you know that judgment is coming after death, but when you also know that life is awaiting you, that completely changes the way you live your lives. There's a story of a Roman general who, on observing Christians dying in the arena with hymns on their lips, he says, I wish the soldiers in my army died half as well as these Christians do. That's because that's what that hope does, that eternal hope, which is why when people want to say things like, really, Christianity, we shouldn't focus so much on heaven. We've got to focus on right now. Well, you, understand, you fail to understand the motivation that the, the someday gives for right now. So Paul says, I'm going to cultivate that hope in these Christians' lives so that they will always be focused upward. They'll be walking in godliness, wanting to learn the truth, and be strengthened in their faith. So there's this great four-part description of what it means to be a believer, but it also characterizes Paul's ministry and the four things he was focusing on and wanting Titus to focus on as well, and that ought to be our focus here. So he says, I'm a servant of God, I'm an apostle, for the sake of the faith, knowledge, godliness, hope of eternal life. Which God, verse 2, who never lies, promised before the ages began and manifested at the proper time in his word through the preaching with which I've been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. He says, which God. So he says all these four things. He says, which God who never lies said. So what is it referring back to? Well, probably all four of those things. But I think primarily eternal life. Eternal life, which God promised us. Now, the ESV has in verse 2 there that God who never lies. The older translations and some of the newer ones too says has God who cannot lie. And some people get really bent out of shape over that word cannot. And so they kind of soften it with never lies. But actually, uh, neither one of them really gets the full sense. It's a Greek word there. And the word is apsudes. And it's psude is the word for lie or falsehood. And then you have that alpha, you have ah in front of it, which makes it a negation. So you could say, God, who is lieless, who is falseless, who is without lie, without falsehood. It's not talking about something he does. It's talking about something he is, which is in fact how we understand righteousness. It's not that God cannot lie or even that he will not lie. It's that he is truth. Do you understand the difference? It's deeper. It's not that the others are are wrong so much, as much as they speak to what is actually saying there, that he is without falsehood. He is truth himself, as Jesus said. So knowing that about God, Paul says that he had promised that eternal hope, and all the rest of those things too, even before the world began. Do you see that? Before the ages began. And the question there is, okay, when exactly did God do that? There's two options here, and they're both good. They both mean the same thing. Is he talking about God's sovereign, eternal plan, like Ephesians 1, 4? He chose us in him before the foundations of the world. Or is it it's just a metaphor, you know, poetic language to describe the very beginning, when God, in Genesis 3:15 says, one day we're going to crush the head of the serpent, and we're going to bring eternal life back to the people. I think in any case, however you understand that, it's always been God's plan to create man, unto eternal life god did not create us for death god created us for life he placed adam and eve in the garden so that they could have eternal life he gave them the tree of life which they neglected which is why the cross was necessary it's not that god had to do that but he desired to do that because it was his determined and purposed will that i will do whatever it takes to bring eternal life to these people And the Old Testament is full of promises that God would someday provide a way of escape from death. Isn't that radical? God said, one day, I'm going to provide a way of escape. And I I thought about sharing all of the Psalms passages where David talks about the resurrection. But I'm just going to read the most obvious one, Daniel 12, 2. When it says this prophecy of the end that Daniel sees. It says, many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. So the Lord is saying, someday there's going to be a resurrection, and some people will live forever. Others will be put to shame, or we might say sent to hell. That's the promise. And God has now manifested his word. The ESV adds this this little preposition in his word he manifested it in his word that word in is actually uh not in the the greek there it's it's there to help illustrate the point but i think it might actually kind of miss it unfortunately Um, remember we're reading a translated bible so that's why we have good teachers to help us out you can absolutely trust it it's not making a mistake here but i think what he's saying here is he manifested that promise through the preaching it's not that he manifested it in the Bible, which is what it kind of seems to be saying. The, the structure that you're supposed to get from that is he manifested that eternal cosmic promise through the preaching, meaning the rubber meets the road when the good news is preached. It's not just something that has been foretold in ages past. When the gospel comes to your town, it's real. You can see it. It becomes actual in your life. When Christ rose again, he sent the church out to go proclaim the news everywhere. And every generation, it seems like there's somebody that wants to speak against that and say, we really shouldn't be going around telling people. about it. If you believe Jesus, that's fine. But why you got to go tell everybody? You know, when, when William Carey first wanted to go to India and preach the gospel, and he was going around to different churches trying to raise funds. There's a famous story where an old man stood up during his message and he said, Young man, sit down. If God sees fit to convert the heathen, he will do so without either your help or mine oh, that sounds so religious and spiritual, doesn't it? What it amounts to is don't go tell Hindus about the gospel. And thank God that we didn't listen to that guy. But even today, you've got that whole anti-colonialism thing. Like, don't, don't go tell them about Jesus. That's just, that's just white privilege. That's just a Western imperialism. That's just colonialism all over again. And, it, and I'm astonished at some of the people that should have known better that bought into all that and now want to like sing a dirge over missions. Or they wanna say things like, we really have a lot more to learn from them than they do from us, which is frankly preposterous, you guys. If you lead somebody to Jesus Christ, you don't put them on the stage to let them teach. They've gotta learn. So when we go to Nepal or wherever and we're teaching about Jesus, yes, there's always something we can learn from each other and we're able to see some of our own biases better when we're in a different place where they don't have them, for example. But somebody that doesn't know the Bible, we don't wanna have them start from scratch. Paul even tells the Hebrews, "says by now, you ought to be teachers. So, we're supposed to go out and preach the gospel. Because when we do that, that eternal hope, that that thing that's in the heart of every person, that how are we going to escape death, the truth of it comes into their life. Like what Paul said in Acts 17. In Athens, he said this. He said, the times of ignorance God overlooked. But now, he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he's fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he's given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. It's Paul's way of saying those days of ignorance, when you didn't know anything about God, they're over. Because God was manifested in the flesh and he rose from the dead. And now I'm here to tell you all about it. This generation of believers is responsible for this generation of lost souls to go tell them. There are still people around the world, regions and countries, that have never heard the gospel. Not like historically, not now, never. We've got to get out there and tell them. You've got neighbors that don't know anything about Jesus. They think they do, but they probably know him better as a curse word than anything else. (laughs) But when you recognize all that ancient hope of salvation is revealed in Jesus Christ... I don't know why i keep running across this lately but people talking about i've been studying world mythology i've been studying joseph campbell i've been studying whoever to learn about world religions and there's really so much to to gain from it it's like you know what it is you're reading that longing of the human heart for something eternal jesus christ comes in and says everything you've been longing for i've come to fulfill you can't complete the hero's journey give me a break What you needed is somebody to come from heaven to go down into the grave and come back up and offer eternal life to you freely. The idea that you can do that yourself is impossible because look at you and look at me. But we have the good news. All of that has finally found its fulfillment in Christ. It was the hope from before, but now it's been manifested. It comes to light when we preach it. Because this this city is never going to see the incarnate Christ dying on a cross. So how do they see them? How do they see him? Through us, preaching the word to them. And Paul himself says, I've been commissioned by God to do this. And he was through the, on the road to Damascus. Jesus told Ananias, I'm going to tell Paul everything he must suffer for my name's sake and everywhere I'm going to send him. My chosen vessel to the Gentiles. You're a chosen vessel too. And it's up to you to learn from the Lord what that is and then to do it with all your heart. To Titus, my true child in a common faith. So this is the addressee to Titus. Titus is the name of the guy he's written to. My true child in a common faith. Who is Titus? Who is Titus? Well, Titus seems to have been the only Gentile convert that Paul made during his 14-year exile in Tarsus. After Paul got saved, he spent three years, he says in the book of Galatians, in Arabia. So basically living a monastic life. Learning from the Lord. He's probably like, look, I know the Old Testament real well, but now that I have the key to this thing, I I better go and figure some things out and read it again and again and again and learn the voice of Jesus and learn the Holy Spirit. He goes back to Damascus. He's run out of town. Very common story for Paul. Goes to Jerusalem, gets run out of town there, and then he goes up, he says, for 14 years to his hometown where he's making tents, preaching the gospel, and so far as we know, the only one he led to Jesus during that time was Titus. I read from now Galatians 2, verses 1 and 3. He's telling the story. He says, Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. Meaning I brought Titus with me to kind of show these are the kind of disciples I'm making. This is the doctrine I'm teaching. Are we all on the same page? And they were, is, is not going to be revealed in that section, but it was. But verse 3, he says, But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. The whole point there is they were having a debate about, do we need to be circumcised to be saved or not? And Paul says, I don't think that, and neither do the apostles, because they didn't circumcise Titus, who came down with him from Tarsus. So he was a Greek. He was a Gentile. It was not Jewish. He had been with Paul Since then, and he came with him, as we read there in Galatians, to Antioch when Barnabas brought him down. So, Titus has been with Paul longer than just about anybody else we know about. Longer than Barnabas. Other places in the Bible narrate Titus as a messenger for Paul, carrying letters for him, delivering messages for him. 2 Corinthians 12.18 talks about that. 2 Timothy four ten talks about that. And in 2 Corinthians 8.23, Paul gives you a little description of Titus. He says, as for Titus... He is my partner and fellow worker for your benefit. Paul had absolute trust in Titus. He sent Titus to go handle the Corinthians. You've read Corinthians, haven't you? So Paul's not about to leave Ephesus again. So who can I send over to handle these rowdy people? And I can be sure they're going to get it right. Who else but Titus? Timothy seemed like to be kind of a timid guy. I guess Titus didn't have that problem. Because Paul's like, "You, you can handle them. You get over there and handle that rowdy crowd all the things they're doing. So Titus was a godly, capable man that Paul trusted implicitly. And he's an example for all of us to follow, especially if you're a Gentile here. This is the kind of man, Titus, is the kind of disciple that Paul was trying to make all over the world. So that's who he is. But we finish this section, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. This is Paul's standard greeting if you read all of his letters, it's kind of how he opens every, every letter. Grace, kairi, was the Greek greeting. We say, hello, they said kairi. Peace is the Hebrew greeting. They would say what? Anybody know? Shalom, which means peace. So it's kind of a, a, a combination of Greeks and Jews together, which is great. But it's also like a mini gospel, too. Grace is what? Grace is a free gift. That's what the word means. It's a gift. And that gift is first the forgiveness of all the wrong that you've done, but also the imputation of the righteousness of Jesus, that not only does God forgive your sins, He credits you with the righteousness of Christ, so that now no longer are you you an enemy of God, you're a son or a daughter of God. That's grace. There's no greater gift than that. It's a complete change of status before the Lord. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says that by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And secondly, peace, which is the result of that grace. First of all, you have peace with God. did not you think some people would just about kill for that? Peace with God? No more wrath for us? As well as peace, peace within ourselves. How many people do you think would kill to have peace within themselves? And also, therefore, peace with one another once we know who we are in Christ. Isaiah 40 prophesied this and said, comfort, comfort my people, says the Lord. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended. Her iniquity is pardoned and that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. That it's over. Sins have been forgiven and now it's time for comfort. Some evangelists are so mean, man. You know, when you're out there to preach comfort to the people. Grace and peace, that's what everybody wants. It's what everybody needs. And you get it freely. That's the gospel. That God the Father sent Christ Jesus his son to become our savior and pay for this. Dying on that cross in a perfect sinless sacrifice. Paying the price for sin that you couldn't pay. And then rising again to demonstrate his victory over death. And now it's up to us to receive that gift through faith. To believe that. To believe that. It's that simple. Romans 10.9 says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It is my earnest desire as your pastor to stir true faith in you and then to give you knowledge and to provoke you to godliness and develop that eternal hope in your heart. That's why Paul sent Titus. That's why Christ sent Paul. That's why all of us are here. Good news. Good news. Even when we confront sin, guys, don't ever forget, we're, we're given good news. And as we open this book, and as we learn a lot of practical lessons as we go through it, all of it is going to be shown against the backdrop of Jesus Christ and his sacrifice on the cross. That everything has changed between us and God. And all we can say to that is, Hallelujah.